Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a cloudy spring morning here in the capital is Greg Thatcher. Greg is the owner, director and CEO at Beyond Group Limited, the holding entity which runs wholesale and catering butchers, RP Meats Wholesale Limited and Blake's Meats Limited. Uh, Greg, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Good morning. Thanks for the opportunity. It's a real pleasure having you with us, Greg. And um, we are recording this, of course, in mid to late May. So I think we should address the elephant in the room here. And that's the fact that we are still in the grip of the global COVID-19 pandemic and have been for the best part of 14 months. So what I'm interested to understand to start with is how this whole situation has affected you and your business over the last year. Yeah, well, it's it's certainly aged me the last 14 months. um, That's for sure. But um, yeah, it's it's been a really interesting and, and quite exciting time. Um, I mean, there's, there's been highs and, and lows throughout the whole period, but uh, um, it, it really got going um, for, for us when um, uh, in, in early March we, we recognised uh, there was obviously a, a global issue coming. But prior to the lockdown actually kicking in in, in the UK, um, we, we realised that uh, particularly with the catering side of the business at Blake's that um, we were going to be we 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 were going to very quickly fall from 100% of our trade to a very, very small amount down to about 2%. So we had to pivot very quickly with uh, with what we were doing. So um, unfortunately, um, the agility that we, we have within in the business and the skill set that we have, we were able to do that um, very quickly. So um, we, we had a, our own mini Cobra meeting, if you like, on, on the Monday morning, mm. um, which was, uh, I can't remember now, is it the 17th of, uh, of March? And um, I sat down with my senior management team and we looked at all the options available to us to how we were going to um, keep the business going, how we were going to keep the 25 jobs that, that we had and, and how we were going to sort of survive into the future. There was this, this great big unknown at, at, at that time. So um, we put all of our heads together and we worked out that uh, an online um, delivery service um, was, was going to be the way forward. So meat boxes to, to houses. So. Um, we initially started up with uh, delivering to the vulnerable and and um, the elderly, who were the first ones that revised to, to stay at home, um, and uh, and then we progressed it to deliver to, to actually everybody. So from the Monday when we decided that that was what we were going to do, we set up a brand new brand um, and we set up a new website. I taught myself how to do web design, and um, uh, we 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 already had the logistics available. We had the skills available. We had the stock. Um, available, so it's just a case of pulling all of those things together. Um, we had our first order online two days after we started on Wednesday afternoon, um, and uh, it quickly grew. We were delivering um, 200, 250 meat boxes a day um, at, it, at its peak, and um, and yeah, the service that we were providing was was really very well received. I've never seen um, comments comments like it. So uh, so that that was amazing. The the other side of the business fared. Um, a hell of a lot better um, because there was a bit of a renaissance with um, retail butchery and, and mm. farm shops. The 
um, the, the, the people were um, somewhat afraid of going to supermarkets and there were obviously shortages and, and things like that. So, uh, so we had one, one business which fared really badly and pretty much lost all its trade and one business which fared exceptionally well and, and pretty much doubled in size overnight um, with the, the service that, that we were offering. And um, fortunately, those levels have, uh, have stuck with, with that business and um, it's, it's still going really well. So um, with, with Blake's, um, it's, uh, it's now come back and we're back up to 100% trade levels, even though everything's not fully 100% open. Um, but during that time, although we were still running uh, the, the online um, stuff, we were still focusing very hard on the um, existing business and how it was going to look when we we're going to come back and trying to make our business as sort of pandemic and COVID proof as we possibly could. Uh, so we, um, we focused heavily on, on education um, for, for example, that, that's an area that's going to be less affected by um, this sort of thing than, than hospitality. So uh, restaurants and, and pubs are going to be the, the first to close and the last to open, whereas education is going to, there's always going to be um, a requirement for, for education to be open as much and as, and as long as possible. So, um, yeah, so it's been a very, very interesting time and a very testing, telling time. You certainly know um, who the staff are, who are the ones that are going to, pop their head above the parapet and help out and who the ones that are, um, are going to be um, there to, to support you moving forward as well. So, um, yeah, a very interesting 14 months, uh, to say the least. And I can imagine as well that you've learned an awful lot, not just about the staff around you and their attitudes, but also about sort of yourself during this time as well. Because as you say, you've, you've taught yourself web design during this period of time. So you've sort of not wasted this period and you've used it to sort of better your skill set. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, learn, learning web design, that, that, that was one thing um, for sure. And, um, and, and other areas of, as well. I think one, one area that has been one of my sort of key learning points um, personally has been empathy um, and understanding how um, our staff are feeling and, and what's going on in, in their lives on a day-to-day basis as well. Whereas previously we might have been very macho about things and just sort of said, come on, roll your sleeves up and crack on with it sort of thing, being a sort of a slightly more male-orientated industry um, and a slightly older, a bit more backward industry, I, I guess we, we might say. Um, that's, that's kind of the, the general attitudes, but uh, we're, we're trying to instill a more modern uh, approach to things and really really understanding what, what is happening with, with each individual. So even the hardiest of people that, that we employ have, have had issues mm. um, like mentally and, and things like that. So really, really trying to um, get under the, the, the skin of that, if, if, if you like, and, and really helping people out and supporting people and, and being giving people more, more freedom um, to, to be themselves and not having to work be the be-all and end-all um, with, with, with their lives. So, that's been a really massive um, learning point for me and as as well and and um, reliance on people giving people responsibility and um, I mentioned it before about the agility of the business and how uh, we were able to pivot very very quickly um, my my focus was 100% on Blake's and I was able to leave RP meets to run with people um, who weren't necessarily uh, responsible at that time, I gave them the responsibility to carry on, and they've really made sort of leaps and bounds with their abilities. So it's given me a lot more confidence in being able to delegate um, roles and empower people. So um, yeah, so a lot of learning has gone on in the, in the last fourteen months, that's for sure. Mm. 
And there's a lot of important things to take from that. Um, you mentioned as well, of course, um, some of the mental health struggles that people were having. I mean, it's been amplified so much by the pandemic, hasn't it? The issue of mental health. And I suppose as a leader of a business, you're under pressure as well to sort of maintain your own composure because ultimately people are looking to you during a crisis to lead by example as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's the uh, the old adage, it's tough at the top um, sort of thing. Um, people want to... Uh, push things up and push things down and, and when it gets up to the, the leaders of the, of the business there's nowhere else you can push it above, over the top so um, I joined a, a network a CEO network um, a couple of years ago which has been extremely beneficial to me but a group called Vistage and um, uh, it's, it's a group of like-minded individuals so we're all CEOs and, and managing directors we own our own businesses um, so we, we we get together on a on a monthly basis and we can share those experiences and and fortunately with with that I've got a bit of an outlet where people can relate to what I'm going through and I can relate to what they're going through and we can support each other in that way. So um, so even even, my, even myself and our, and ourselves we still have to have that support network around us to mm. to be able to keep us keep us going if if, if you like. So um, yeah so. Everybody needs support. The, men, the mental um, issues and the mental health side of things is, yeah, it's really, really come to the fore. I think it's been been um, exposed in 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 extreme ways, but in the right ways as well. I think people are a lot more aware of what's going on, what's happening around them uh, than they would have been say in twenty nineteen. And you talked an awful lot as well about the resilience of the business. And that's something that we've seen on an unprecedented scale. Businesses pivoting, being innovative to be able to survive during this time. And uh, you say one arm of the business that's done really well is, of course, the um, the meat supplying retail arm. The, from, and that's sort of cashed in on people being a little bit afraid to go out to supermarkets and buy sort of general products. Now, what has been apparent during this pandemic from a market research group, and this is a bit of data that I've been privy to, is that during the pandemic, there's been a real sort of vigour, if you will, to buy local and buy British produce. And that's something that will hold the business in real good stead going forward, that, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, again, the the, the same as the the mental health side, it's... um, it's been really accelerated, and I think we're five years ahead of where we perhaps would have been otherwise um, had had this not happened. And people showed a real interest in in their food, and um, the, the I think where people had a lot of time on their hands, certainly in that kind of March, April, May period last year when we were locked down, uh, they started to show a lot more interest in what they were eating and um, and where they were buying it. Um, so the the whole environmental issue um, came to the fore and a lot of people were much more interested in provenance and quality and what was actually going into their food. So um, and they, they were sort of the, the comments that, that we were getting from um, from both sides, from the, from the place side where we're doing the home deliveries and, and serving the end, the end customer. Um, people couldn't believe how good um, meat can really taste when it comes from a, a really responsibly farmed and uh, environmentally friendly source. So, um, yeah, so there's definitely been a renaissance in that in 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 that respect. People going to the butcher shops. Butcher shops are much busier than they than they used to be, and and rightly so as well. They they provide a, an amazing service to, um, to to the general public, and it's not a supermarket stack it high, sell it cheap. It's a, a real quality article, and the health benefits and and everything that goes with it are, are much much higher than um, than what you might get elsewhere. So just reflecting on sort of the last fourteen months as a whole, then. Um 
even though it's been such an immensely tragic and challenging time, this coming out of the other side, do you feel that you're stronger as a business and you yourself are stronger as an individual now for the experience that you've had? A hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so uh, RP Meats at the moment is trading um, in the region about 30 to 40% higher than it was pre-pandemic. Um, and I don't see that going anywhere. Um, and Blake's is back up to 100% already and things aren't even fully open at the moment. But we've invested a lot of time and energy into into new business and new trade. But we've also invested a lot into um, our IT um, uh, our IT systems. So we're a lot slicker, we're a lot faster. The communication with customers is a lot better. The quality service and everything that we do is a lot better about the businesses. So my confidence with the businesses moving forward is is, is absolutely great. We'll continue that investment. We're, we're investing all the time. Um, so that's all. Um, yeah, that's that, that's all really exciting. And and as an individual. Um, yeah, I, I don't think you can come through it with two businesses that have survived and survived well um, and not feel more confident, really. It, it, when, when you talk about business resilience, one never plans for a business to go from 100% to 2% in the space of a day or two. We might say, okay, well, what would happen if we lose our top five customers or something and we trade at 50%? That might be the, the most that we stress test our business. Um, so to, to say 100% is, is something that would never, ever happen in the real world, but it has happened and um, and it might happen again. So we need to operate with those things in mind. So there's a lot of lessons learned um, there. And um, yeah, I, I feel definitely a, a lot stronger for the, uh, for the future, for the future ahead, that's for sure. And just talking about that future before we wrap things up, because I am conscious that we're starting to uh, run short of time here, Greg. Um, yeah. We can afford to have a little bit of cautious optimism about the future, can't we? With that roadmap out of social restrictions being there now, we know roughly what sort of milestones we're looking at. But if we sort of preview the next 12 months as we hopefully emerge from this for good, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at your businesses? And where are you really hoping that you are this time next year? Um, that, yeah, it's, uh, we, we approach it with caution. Mm. Um, that, that's for sure. Um, I think 12 months ago, I would have been saying uh, a, di- a different thing. I think, I think we would have been approaching it a bit more gun ho as we were going into eat out to help out and, and things like that. Everything looked very bright and rosy, but, um, we're, we're still approaching things. We're still investing, but at the same time, um, we're solidifying our existing business and um, looking to have 12 months of, uh, of growth, but not as aggressive as perhaps we might have done previously. So um, we're, we're looking to grow um, in, in the region of about 20 to 25% uh, across both, both markets. So we're, we're confident that things are going to be okay. I don't envisage any more lockdowns or, or anything like that. I think the vaccination vaccination program in this country has been absolutely magnificent. Um, so there's, um, yeah, we should be very proud of, of what we've achieved there. So, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to a bright 12 months. And, um, yeah, I, I, my forecast for the, the general economy, uh, I think it's going to be extremely strong. We're going to see a very, very strong bounce back. There's going to be a lot of money that needs to be spent. I know a lot of people have been through awful situations and, and things. And, yeah, many of my business have, have experienced that. But as a general um, nationwide position, I think we're going to see a really exciting time um, ahead with uh, with a lot of money being spent. Mm. 
Exactly. Let's keep our fingers crossed that we can really sort yeah. of build our way out of this quickly. And the fact that you're mentioning that G word growth um, in relation to your business during this time is absolutely incredible as well and a real testament to how it stood up um, in this uh, pandemic. Um, I've got to say, Greg, it's been a real eye opener and a real pleasure welcoming you onto the show with us today. So thanks once again for taking the time to join us this morning. And also do take care and do stay safe as well with everything still going on because we're not quite out of the woods yet, but we're nearly there. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks very much. And coming up next on the programme today, we'll be handing over to Sir Andrew Strauss, the ex-director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. And as a player, he was one of only three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia. He's also the England captain with the second highest amount of test victories under his belt in history. That will be coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might last. Absolutely. Thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved uh, it would be someone like Harry who was a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England so absolutely and I want England to do well I mean I I'm want England to be successful I'm an England supporter I'm a football supporter and I just I really want the country to do well in, in anything in, in all sports and particularly in my sport so I want wanted to bury it and I'll be absolutely I would be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my, uh, my achievements, about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three, in one sense, is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened the ball nestled in the top corner England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup but you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before haven't you yes I think people um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment obviously a crucial moment in, in the games was the end of the game 
I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually with my back to goal. I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms indicating quite clearly of course that the game was nearly finished so when I got to the edge of the box I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished I'm thinking if the game's nearly finished I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left but I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hands still Kowski the German keeper by that time surely the game's got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it, and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about... Uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that... that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks, uh, of making it, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership. If you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances, I don't think that's, where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now being replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run up with enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital in uh, important in a sense to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on and, and also into what was also for me fantastic all these people from different, different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you you union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identify then as that 
great unification of the country. 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that... I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coincidence and the fortunate in your life to be at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be a rap, to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. 
Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes, but it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life uh, and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, not a big long road, um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, we didn't as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the str- across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted, that was the goal. And it's always a free to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't, didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they... Um, took us to court and uh, we actually got fined this is absolutely true we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden astounding when you think about it isn't it mm. and when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street and uh, we were actually but that that happens that happens you'll, you'll hear stories we see stories of neighbours falling out over different things you see those those stories every day but that was certainly a true story absolutely absolutely true and during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton under Lyne. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was... Pr- probably I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street 
uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think, was uh, had a big influence going back to that third goal in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed. And I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't... I wasn't a child, although I had a footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial w- with them, and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff, then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football, and I was pretty reasonably good. There was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or. Uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said I'm going to try you up front he put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically and I suppose as well what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire wasn't it yes a lot of people know that uh, one game uh, one game the sort of went messing about but t- between the two I had the one first class game for Essex at, as you said Egberth in, um, in Liverpool and I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season early games for those two or three years extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. 
And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky. Uh, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of... And you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, he was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them described trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that had uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charlton's and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully 
push some of my discipline into Alan Hutton, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham, it was a great time at the club. And I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They'd won, of course, the uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in, the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs only a short spell at West Brom of course but I think uh, as I always jokingly say I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then um, West Brom was a fantastic club but I was uh, wasn't at my best and I thought it was time to retire which I did and Johnny Giles was in charge then I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year but I've made very little contributions to that success that club had so um, yes it, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never thought of long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's... I think the that kind of... Uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe uh, maybe longer maybe in longer not some sort of immediately after the finish playing but in the long term when um, uh, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage 
as a legend. And, and I always jokingly say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my, you know, talking to my family life, if we're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. It ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.